This is Rise and Grind, and I'm Damon John, and I turned $40 into the multi-billion dollar brand FUBU. I'm also a shark on ABC's Shark Tank and a consultant to brands, businesses, entrepreneurs, executives, and celebrities all over the world. For my new book, Rise and Grind, I sat down with some of my highly successful peers from all different industries to see how they conquered their goals. And in this podcast, I'm going to give you an in-depth, inside look into the daily habits and routines of each of my guests to find out how exactly they make the most of their 24 hours. Rise and Grind is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter has helped businesses of all sizes find great people. And right now, listeners to my podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. A little later, it's grow time with ZipRecruiter CEO and co-founder Ian Siegel. Ian will share some insight on pivotal moments that help businesses and their leaders grow. Today, we'll hear about some of his brushes with failure and what he learned from it. Stick around for that. Today, I'm talking a badass Bozema St. John. Bozema broke out on the scene in 2016 at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. At the event, she introduced the redesigned Apple Music and brought the house down. Today, she's Uber's chief brand officer. Bozema's work has been celebrated by Adweek, Billboard Magazine, and Fast Company which named her one of the 100 most creative people in the world. Bozeman St. John, welcome to the Rise and Grind podcast. And I am uh, so happy to introduce you to my community. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very excited. Um, for those who are not aware of you, uh, you were born in the United States and uh, uh, before moving to Ghana at the age of six years old. Uh, you lived in Ghana until you were 12 years old, and then your family moved back to the United States. Currently, you are the chief brand officer at Uber, and um, uh, you know, uh, making you one of the only female black C-suite executives in Silicon Valley. But previously, even before this, what I think is a huge job, a massive undertaking, you were VP of marketing and e-commerce at Ashley Stewart. Uh, head of Music and Entertainment Marketing at PepsiCo, Senior Vice President at Beats Music, and I know after the acquisition, you uh, became the Head of Global Consumer Marketing at Apple Music, and just some of your awards are um, Executive of the Year at Billboard 2016 Women in Music Awards, Fast Company, 100 Most Creative People, and I think probably your largest and best accomplishment is you're a mom of a, tw uh, of a, of a young lady. <laughs> Man, I mean, I, I started to sweat, you know? I, mm. I got a little nervous when you were going and going and mm -hmm. going. <laughs> I mean, but you know, I'm still so young and spry. So uh, That's right. yeah, there's, there's so much that uh, has been part of my journey. But what was the reason that your family moved uh, back from the United States or to Ghana from the United States? My, my dad was in the U.S. Uh, for his graduate education. So he received two PhDs, one in ethnomusicology and the other in anthropology. Uh, and when he graduated, I was actually six months old when we, the first time we moved back to Ghana, um, where after teaching at the university, he joined um, politics. And his government that he was a part of was overthrown in a coup d'etat uh, by the military. And we had to escape Ghana. Wow. And so my mother... Uh, two of my younger sisters, I'm the oldest, uh, and she was pregnant with my third sister, uh, had to escape to Washington, D.C. Uh, under political asylum while my dad was incarcerated in political detention. Um, oh, wow. And through a number of, you know, call it fate or divine intervention, he was able to be released while some of his colleagues and, and um, folks that he had served in, in the government with uh, were tortured and killed. And so we, of course, were very fortunate to be reunited with him um, about a year after the coup d'etat. And um, even though we were living in the U.S. for a temporary time, he really wanted to return to Africa uh, and continue to help with, you know, sub-Saharan African conflict as well as um, ministry. And so we moved to Nairobi, Kenya, 
Uh, but, you know, the, his first love is Ghana. <laughs> right, Both right, of my right. parents are Ghanaian. And so we eventually made our way back to Ghana after it was safe to return. Um, but by that point, you know, the the environment had changed, the culture had changed. There wasn't um, a lot for him to really be involved in in the way that he wanted. So he chose, you know, fabulous, diverse Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, you moved to Colorado settlement. Springs, Colorado? <laughs> yes, uh -huh. Colorado, yep. Uh, when I was 12. And that uh, is where I would call my formative years. You know, it was the first time that I was probably uh, in any stable situation for longer than a year and a half, you know. So I put down roots, uh, although it was difficult <laughs> given the environment and being a stranger in a strange land. Um, but really, it kicked off, you know, so much. I, I credit so much in my life to that very moment in time. So my story has been, you know, sort of rounding in that degree that uh, I'm always moving. I'm always challenged with being in environments that um, perhaps are not used to me, but that I have to make my own. Yeah, I would think Colorado Springs, you were probably one of the few uh, people of color. No, you were very correct. That is a correct assumption. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, how long were you in Colorado Springs, and what was your first move to uh, to move out of Colorado Springs, or you know, you know, do you still have ties and roots there? Like, like, just tell me how you started to grow and develop, and then your first kind of foray out of there. Well, it's interesting. You know, I I often am intrigued by the sort of the movement of immigration. You know, that my family is is definitely an example of what what the immigration sort of math looks like and why immigration happens the way it does. So my family moved to Colorado Springs. We were, you know, one of the first few, maybe the only Ghanaian family to move there. Uh, but by the time I graduated high school, there were six or seven other families, other Ghanaian families who had moved to Colorado Springs. So we had like our own little community. And today it's actually a very thriving, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, Ghanaian populace. Uh, in Denver and Colorado Springs. Um, but yeah, I left Colorado when I graduated from high school, hightailed it out, you know, and went east um, to Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, which is actually where my dad got his PhDs. And it's incidentally where I was also born. By the way, I, I always swore that I would never go there. Really? <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm going to that school. And then, of course, it's like, you know, we went there for Alumni Sons and Daughters Weekend or some other, you know, weekend like that. And I fell in love with the liberal arts and decided that was, that was going to be the place for four years. Well, I mean, isn't that how it usually goes for uh, you, myself, uh, and all the people listening? Don't our kids usually say that they're never going to do anything we do? Because my, my, my kids think I'm still the dumbest <laughs> man on the planet anyway. Um, right. And, and then right, we end up realizing right, exactly. maybe, maybe, maybe mom and dad weren't as dumb as I thought, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, it's like, you know, it comes back to bite us, right? It's like you said, I'm a mother now, and... Uh, there are many things that I suggest or say <laughs> that my daughter is like, what? Yeah. I, I know better. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm like, you're eight. You can't, you know what I mean? Like, relax. No, of course. 100%. <laughs> now, uh, so you go there and you, you love the liberal arts. Uh, do, you, uh, you, do you stay there? Do you graduate with a certain degree? You know, how does that look once you're getting out of school? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny. My, you know, bec again, because of immigrant parents and, you know, sort of first generation American uh, upbringing, there were really only three degrees that my parents were willing to be satisfied with, you know, or three three um, occupations that I could come out with and would feel I'd be successful. I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer, or I could be an engineer. Those were the three things I was allowed to do. <laughs> and I happened to be very good at the sciences and math. And again, being, you know, a black woman from Colorado Springs, Colorado, who's good at sciences and math, there are just not a lot of us running around. Uh, and so when I went to college, I immediately became pre-med. You know, I took all of the all the requirements, the, you know, orgo chem and the rest. And um, but by the time I was, I would say probably my sophomore year, uh, I started to discover the arts. You know, it was the things that I hadn't really had time to explore in high school that started to draw me. You know, I took some classes like the Intro to African American Studies, which was a phenomenal class. It opened up my sort of my view of the world and, you know, sort of the politics and the history of uh, the African American plight. And I, you know, really identified with so much um, in readings of, 
you know, Zora Neale Hurston and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. Uh, and it really just it, it just opened up my entire world. Um, I also love dance and music and, you know, just it just became like the secondary thing. Uh, which then took all of my interest. <laughs> so by the time I graduated, um, I had already switched majors in my junior year to English and African American studies, but I still applied to med school. Um, got in and then decided to take a break, uh, which I also negotiated with my parents <laughs> to take a to take a year break before I went to med school, uh, and I never made it there. <laughs> how, how did that negotiation go? Oh, man. It was tough. It was tough. My dad is a tough negotiator, you know? <laughs> um, my mom was more open. You know, she was she was more willing to say, you know, go explore the world, you know, see what you, you know, you want to see, get it all out of your system. My dad probably knew better. You know, he was like, if you don't go now, you'll probably never go. Uh, but I convinced them somehow that they should let me uh, move to New York City, which, you know, we didn't know anybody in New York, but it was close enough to Connecticut. I'd always dreamed of living in New York. Um, I was young and dumb and thought, you know, everything comes up roses, right, when you move mm -hmm. to a big city like that. And uh, by the way, again, because immigrant parents, they refused to finance anything. So it wasn't like I was, you know, sitting in some lush apartment financed by my parents. You know, I was, de I was definitely sleeping on a friend's <laughs> couch you know, um, cooking their dinners to, uh, you know, allow me to sleep there, going to the bodega on the corner, you know, to get, uh, you know, a, a cheap roll so that I could eat. That was the kind of environment that I was I was working with. <laughs> what would be your first job? So interestingly enough, I really I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, if I if I say that I did, I would be lying to you. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was that I really enjoyed what now we call pop culture, right? Mm -hmm. I loved everything that had to do with fashion and music and sports and film. And those were the circles I was running in. You know, I was definitely in the club heavy. You mm -hmm. know, I, I was in the streets like I was just I was just out um, exploring the arts. And I, you know, but of course, like we said, you know, I needed to make some money because I had to take care of myself. Uh, so I joined a temp agency, um, which would call me in the morning, you know, and, and tell me where to go, basically. So every day, pretty much every day, I was somewhere new, unless the job was like, you know, a week long or something like that. I did everything. I mean, I, you know, I was a receptionist. I, um, once I, I was a, I went to a dog salon. Uh, where I, I helped there. <laughs> right. I uh, did some archiving of magazines. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, again, Divine Intervention took hold, and Spike Lee had fired his assistant one day. And that next day, they called me and said, I need to go answer phones at his new agency called Spike DDB, which was on Madison and 49th Street in Manhattan. Uh, and I walked in there thinking, all right, uh, I'm just going to do whatever they tell me to do. And it literally changed my life. You know, that, that moment changed my life. And that was really the beginning of um, probably the trajectory I'm on now. It was sort of um, a open-ended employment, right? Uh, because he had fired his assistant or the receptionist. And so they were actively looking for someone while I was, you know, taking place of answering the phones and whatnot. Um, but, you know, one day Spike walked in, um, he had written Bamboozled, and I believe they'd even started like principal photography. Um, but he had the, you know, the script in his, in his hands and he was passing by my desk and he knew that I had studied English and African-American studies. And Bamboozled is a, you know, it's a, a political satire of sorts uh, on the African-American ex existence. I mean, most of Spike's films are. And, you know, it's very heavy and it's hard to read and it's, you know, it's hard to uh, ingest. But he had the copy of, of the script and he dropped on the desk and said, you know, hey, take a look at this, read it, tell me what you think. Um, and I don't know what happened, but I thought he meant that I should, like, mark it up. <laughs> I thought he meant, like, take a look at it and tell me what you think by making corrections. So I took a red pen. I made all the corrections on it. I mean, I, I made corrections to, like, language and dialogue, you know, not knowing, of course, that that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Right, right. Because who critiques a master like Spike, right? 
And when he came back for it, uh, or he asked me the next, you know, he asked me a few days later, which, by the way, was a lot of pressure because it is a hard script to read, uh, what I thought of it. And I handed it back to him and he looked at me so crazy. You know, he was just <laughs> like, you made changes to my script, you know? And I'm right. like, uh, is that not what you want me to do? I, I thought, I, no, this is not cute. You know, but the fact of the matter is that that is actually what changed our relationship. You know, because he looked at it and came back. I definitely knew I was fired. I mean, I, I thought I, that was it. Right, right. Uh, but he came back and he was like, "No, you're." He's like, "You made some good points." He's like, "All right, you you could." He's like, "You should stay here." You know, and I was like, "Hallelujah! I've got a job, and Spike won't kill me. That's amazing." So it really is what started my trajectory because again, I didn't know that there was a career available in what now I just call broadly storytelling. You know, that advertising could be the way in um, because I knew for sure that I wasn't going to, you know, I, I didn't, didn't I didn't want to direct, you know, um, although I liked reading, I, I really didn't want to be a writer at that moment. Um, and so I didn't know that there was any other way to sort of get my storytelling out and advertising in the 30s and the 60 second commercials became that moment, you know, where you can apply what's happening in pop culture to a brand and create a new story. Uh, and and it, it really has been now the blueprint for how I've conducted my career since. Let's just get the mindset of the blueprint, your DNA down. What drives you to take these chances and not have fear at that age then? Mm. And do you still have that way you look at things now? Oh, yeah, that's a, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't think I've I've ever thought of it the way that you just described it, you know, that's, uh, it, it does make me pause, <laughs> if I'm yeah. being totally honest, you know, um, because you're, you're right, that there have certainly been, even at that point, because, you know, we're, we're only up to the story when I was like 23 years old, you know, and even up until that point, there had been several things that have, that had happened, which could have been legitimate excuses or legitimate reasons, rather, not excuses, reasons to take a different route, you know, or to pipe down. Correct, because we haven't even gotten to the corporate culture and people being jealous and <laughs> or sensitive or not believing in right. you. Um, we didn't even get to that point yet. We'll get to that, but I'm sure that this this defining understanding of how you uh, look at things as an approach will probably help us answer those questions going forward. Yeah, but I, w I definitely want to know the DNA and, and, and what what makes you tick. Well, I think there, there's a couple of things. I think there's nurture and nature, right? It's in, it's in my nature to be optimistic. I think, you know, I'm a natural optimist. And so I really do look at the glass half full always. You know, I always think that it is possible that, you know, the good will come. Um, so that's naturally how I behave. Um, I also naturally connect to people well. So in any environment, it really doesn't matter where I am. Um, I'm going to find some commonality with someone and use that to make friends. You know, as, as trite as that sounds, I think friendships have helped me along the way more than anything. Um, but also by nurture, my parents are extraordinarily determined. You know, my, my dad's story goes a little further back in that, you know, he comes from a super small village in western part of Ghana called Inzema. It's right on the border of the Ivory Coast. And he was an orphan by the time he was 14 years old and um, never went to high school. But through grit and determination and, you know, all of those things, he was able to get a Fulbright scholarship to the U.S. and get two PhDs. You know, like I'm, I'm not cut from cloth that allows for mediocrity you know the the dna that has been nurtured in me through nature is determined to survive so it's kind of the anything worth doing is worth overdoing concept, yes right? that's right that's right and then even when we moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, you know, my mom, I talk about her all the time because she she was absolutely determined um, to to make sure that we never assimilated. We as in her girls, you know, four girls 
that we would find and be pri- and be really proud of our heritage and where we're from and who we are. You know, we're all very tall women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, she would speak our language in, at home. She would cook the food. If we had friends come over, she refused very famously, you know, not to speak English when they were over. You know, meanwhile, they're like, doesn't your mom speak English? And I'm like, yeah, she actually speaks four languages, but <laughs> today she's going to speak Fanti because you're in our house, you know? Um, but what that instilled for me from a, a nurture standpoint is this un, unwavering confidence, you know, that like whatever I'm bringing to the table is worth it. It's worthy. You know, I don't have to assimilate. I don't have to pretend to be anything else. I don't have to try and be you, you know, that for, for me, those were prized lessons that I didn't know were lessons until obviously much later in life was I able to, you know, really appreciate them. But at the time, I believe that those parts of my nature, as well as the nurture that I got from my parents, allowed me to then, yes, overcome a lot of these situations and not be fearful of what was going to come next or feel like, oh, this is impossible. Like, How am I going to survive in big old New York City without you know, money or opportunity. It was like, girl, you better get up and go figure it out. You know, it's like, listen, you, listen, you don't have any money. You better get yourself a temp job. You know, you don't, you don't know anything about taking care of puppies because my mom refused to have pets in the house. Well, you listen, you're going to dog wash today. So you better like it, you know? So to me, there's, there's always been that combination of, uh, yes, both my, DNA, <laughs> literal DNA, and also the DNA of the grind of my parents that, that, you know, that does not allow me to say no. All right. We're going to take a quick break because right now it's grow time with Ian Siegel, CEO of ZipRecruiter. What's up, Ian? Nice to be here, Damon. Now, thank you for being here. And of course, I want to talk about the time when you almost failed but fought through it. How did that experience help you or help your business grow? Well, when I was very young, and I'm talking 22 years old, through a series of events, I found myself promoted to running a 40-person engineering team. And people talk about imposter syndrome. Well, I'd never managed a team before. I didn't have a computer science degree. I didn't think I was an imposter. I knew I was an imposter. Mm I literally had no idea how to do the job I had just been thrust into. What I chose to do was go to the leaders of that engineering org, and every day I would literally walk up to them and say, tell me exactly what you want me to do today. And whatever they said, I would do. And this went on for months. And eventually, in what was a fit of insecurity, I went to them and I said, I'm so sorry that I don't know how to do this job. I'm so sorry I'm bad at this job. And they said, what are you talking about? You're the best manager we ever had. And the reason they said that is because I listened. And that would affect me for the rest of my career and how I approached management. So you learned from them and you became the person you feared you weren't by asking just a simple question. I think that, that one of the things that we believe is that when we become a manager, we have to start telling people what to do. And in fact, the more you listen, the better the team does. That was ZipRecruiter CEO Ian Siegel, and we'll hear from him again later when he shares some thoughts about what to focus on as your business grows. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. As you're moving up in the ladder in Ashley Stewart and PepsiCo and Beats Music and even today, um, you know, you, you know whether we're you know somebody who's listening to this right now who wants to get their stuff in a in a Walmart and the buyer's telling them no or they just want to get a better position or, or a higher position in their company. I'm sure you got knocked down. I'm sure some people took credit for your stuff. I'm sure, you know, you even intimidated a lot of people. Some some people just hid what you're doing. How what is the what is the technique that you've been able to successfully implement your black playbook of how to successfully get things done? Because, see, you know, uh, you have the drive and the DNA. That's great. And we've already established that. But now 
you have to deal with personalities and people in large, large corporations. So what is your secret sauce and or playbook that you do daily or weekly or an attitude to get other people on your side as you grow within these systems? Mm, gosh, that's a really great question. Oh, because Lord knows, it's like we can control what we can control, and then other people come into the mix, and you just want to hurt somebody, you know, sometimes. <laughs> you know, do people just want to push your buttons? I want to give you the credit for what you deserve, you know, all those things. And believe me, I have had my fair share. Right. Like, I have had my fair share of that. And... Ooh, we, we probably need another seven hours if we want to talk about all of that. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but, you know, I think, re yeah, really, I'm telling you, it's like, it ain't easy, man. You know, black women in corporate America, it ain't easy. Um, but I, I do feel like, you know, part of what I said before is true about what my, you know, sort of my go-to tactics, right? Mm -hmm. I make friends. I really okay. do. Uh, even when I don't want to. Right. <laughs> I make friends or allies, I think, is the more politically savvy way to say it, you know, that I really do that well. It's one of my secret weapons. Is that part of finding also, as you said, the glass half full, you find the beauty in them. So you're not yes. falsely doing it. You're genuinely appreciating some aspect of the person. That is correct. That is correct. Because it generally speaking, there is something to like about everyone. That's a very general statement mm -hmm. <laughs> there are some people who have no redeeming qualities but <laughs> in most cases people have something about them that we can connect to and that's what's so amazing about our human condition you know what i wish that more people would understand is that we are more alike than we are different really we are you know and so when you can find those similarities with colleagues whether they're at your level or below you or above you uh, it really helps, you know, to have people who are looking out, you know, because you're an ally and because they like you, you know, that that is actually a really important gift that, you know, we can go into these situations where you're constantly battling, but it's so much easier to battle when you have allies, you know, when you have friends, when you have people who will, who will put up for you or stick up for you when you're not in the room. And that has truly been one of the secrets to my success is that I'm not fighting this alone. I really am not. And the allies and friends usually don't even look like me, you know, because the truth of the matter is that when we look around our environments, um, we all know that the numbers in diversity are abysmal for most companies that we're in in corporate America. Um, and so we've got to find the allies who sometimes look nothing like us or don't have, you know, any of the interests that we do. But again, there is got to be something redeeming. And I do the work to find out what that thing is, you know, and then use it to make sure that I am connecting in a way that can be real. These are not fake friendships. Now, all of a sudden, you take on the biggest job that anybody in the world will take on. You're a mother. Mm. Now, how mm -hmm. do you get to yeah. balance dealing with these corporate people, and also you're doing a great job, obviously, because you keep going from place to place and, and different levels, so you obviously are producing amazing work because we probably wouldn't be having this conversation mm -hmm. if you didn't if you didn't produce <laughs> amazing work, right? So, well, Amen. Right? You better so, say that louder. 100% because, you know, they're, they're not, nobody's giving Same you any favors back, around here. You know? Right. So you better tell them because sometimes people get confused. No, no, no. There, there's no favors. Ain't nobody ain't nobody going to stamp you on. Uh -uh. Mm -mm. There's no favors. Yeah. No favors. Yeah. They'll give you a couple of maybe they'll <laughs> stamp your face on a diversity uh, poster. But, you know, if you ain't right. doing your job. Right. Right. You know, you got to deliver. So. Yeah. You're not you're not getting the next job. Right. Right. Exactly. So. So I want to know now what makes you tick every day because you know as I talk to a lot of people you know you may mentor people or you may be very inspirational people but they only see you once you're ready to turn on the lights and and perform and and, and produce but what do you do the first 90 minutes of your day well I'm naturally a night owl I like the nighttime better um, when I became a mother I was forced <laughs> into daytime and, and early morning uh, routines because that was the only time I could find to really get myself going. You know, I had to wake up before her. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still it's still the truth now. You know, she so the first ninety minutes of my day, I wake up about five forty five or six o'clock usually 
Uh, my daughter wakes up at 6.30, so it gives me about 45 minutes to 30 minutes to really wake up. Um, and that, I, I don't check my email, I don't go to my phone, I don't check my text messages, nothing. I don't touch the phone or anything else. Um, I usually, you know, pray, walk around my house, like just trying to wake up, literally. No, no, but um, wait, you're brushing over some. You're, you're brushing over some very important parts. Am I? Because believe it or not, most of the people <laughs> in Rise and Grind, that's the exact thing they do. They will not answer any emails the first ninety minutes of the day because they don't want to take care of everybody else's goddamn problems, right? And they that's do correct. pray. And, that's correct. And they do pray. They, yes. they give thanks yes. for the day. Yes. Okay. Yes, because I guarantee you. Most of the time, the emails and the text messages are not in service of you. You know, it's usually because there's some problem or some issue, somebody asking you to do something. So you're saying that you don't wake up and get emails that said, all the problems I had, I took care of it. I'm sending you a check tomorrow. You don't get that email? <laughs> right. Exactly. I wish I would get that email, but no, I don't. Usually it's like, oh, my goodness, this thing happened. Or can you get back to me? Or what do you think about this problem? How do we solve this thing? You know, that's what I get. And so I don't want to start off my day like that. It will start off badly if I don't center myself first. And so when I wake up, I am, no, I am not picking up the phone because more times than not, it is not in service of me. That's right. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so I, I really do center. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, let's not pretend like we don't wake up sometimes with problems on our minds. Mm -hmm. I certainly do. I'm not immune to that. Uh, but it really does give me a chance to think through it, you know, before I, I get to the actual response or whatever. You know, I'll wake up with thoughts on my mind um, and be able to really think through it. And like I said, pray on it, you know, um, and like I said, walk around my house, you know, thinking about it, get some juice, like, you know, just really have a second. I actually have this um, sign, you know, in my room, which uh, is a scripture, which, uh, you know, be still and know that I am God. It is one of my favorite scriptures because it reminds me just, again, to be still, you know, that waking up and even going to sleep, the same thing, you know, that I, I'm not I'm not sleeping with the problems on my mind um, because I know that in this, you know, divine walk that I'm in, uh, that most of the time the issues and the problems um, are going to be resolved because the intention that I have in the world is in positivity you know it is in belief that it will all work out for the greater good you know and so for me the way that i operate is that you know a lot of times i i really do i i'm a faithful woman um and so i do start my day and end my day in prayer um and i you know even i've passed it on to my daughter so when she wakes up at 6 30 um, I usually have to walk into her room and, you know, wake her up and we'll sit there for five minutes. You know, she has a shorter amount of time to prep because <laughs> sure. she's got to go to school. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, but we're we're learning that, too. You know, I'm teaching her that so that we can sit for a second. She can have a little bit of peace uh, before she gets up and starts running around the house, getting herself ready for school. Um, but usually, you know, the, the mornings tend to be hectic after she gets up, you know, because we're both getting ready. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm trying to catch a flight after I drop her off at school. Um, and by that point, I, I have usually picked up my phone and answering the three or four burning emails or text messages uh, before uh, I really start my day in the office or on a flight. You know, that's a great... Um you know, that's a great point that I think you brought up that I don't think I've heard from um, some of my other, uh, you know, partners in, 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 in talking to is that so you take, you know, maybe five minutes with her. Do you pray with her or, you know, what, what do you what is that calming moment that you do as she's setting up her day uh, with her that five minutes or 10 yeah. minutes? Do you pray with her or is it what, what exactly do you do? We usually pray at night. And so for her in the morning, you know, it's, it's interesting. This is such a great question because I haven't really thought about it practically. But usually I ask her what she dreamed about, you know, if she dreamed or what she dreamt about um, or what she wants, you know, what, what's going to happen today. You know, what is she looking forward to today? Uh, because it usually inspires her to get up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, she'll, you know, it's like, oh, she, you know, usually it's something to do with a friend or now she's playing sports. And so maybe she has a game or something, you know, that inspires her. Or if she had a really fun dream, you know, or sometimes a scary dream, uh, we can talk about it, you know, but it gives me a lot of insight into what's on her mind. 
You know, I think that's a good idea. I think that, you know, I have a I have a two year old and as she grows up, uh, you know, gets mm. a little older, I think that um, I'm going to probably start and her mother and I probably talk. I'll probably say, you know, why don't we pray with her in the morning when we get up or do exactly yeah. that. You know, what do we have to give thanks for and what are we looking for towards the day? Because uh, too many of us have had, you know, you know, unfortunately, their parents wear their heart on their sleeves and sometimes they wake up with all the stress and they're telling you to hurry up and this mm. and you didn't clean up your room and mm-hmm. this and that without mm-hmm. getting that silent moment just to reflect for a second on, on, on the good things. I'm telling you, it's it's five minutes, but it is transformative. It really is, you know, five minutes. But because it's really not longer. First of all, I can't keep her attention for longer than that. Um, but it is, it really, and it, it helps me parent better too, you know, because, um, you know, that quite like the question at the end of the day was like, how's your day today? Usually you're going to get the, it's okay. it was fine, yeah. <laughs> you know, without any kind of expansive answer, you know, but in the morning, the, you know, what are you looking forward to today? Or what did you dream about? Gives me a lot more insight into also what is happening in her world that she might not divulge otherwise. Yeah, and what you can ask her <laughs> later on. Hey, so. so how did that go, or did you have fun doing right. this and that? You know, my mother used to do something very sneaky. She used to do uh, she used to do big jigsaw puzzles with me because she said that, you know, she did the normal thing. Hey, what's going on with your friend Alfred? He's okay. What are you, uh, you know, what are you looking, you know, what did you do today? Nothing. Uh, but throughout right. throughout the jigsaw puzzle, three hours, she would slowly ask me things going on. And because I'm just in a conscious flow of thought, I would just continue to tell her what's going on. And she would know everything about my life. Mm. We would do it once a month. Right. So uh, so I find that fascinating. Wow. Now, all right. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, mom, mom is very sneaky with it, and I love her for it. Mom is good. That's a good one too. I might have to adopt that jigsaw puzzle. No, I, like I mean that. that's that's the whole thing that's that Roger about. We got to keep learning off each other because we got to keep improving what yes, we're doing. Yes, exactly. Right? I'm like, okay, so you're gonna pray in the morning. I'm gonna do some jigsaw puzzles. Fantastic. It, the day then kind of gets dictated by whatever's in my inbox, you know, or whatever's on the calendar. Um, but I really do try to be present. You know, maybe that's um, that's another you know, trick that I use because the challenge I think for a lot of people who have so much complexity in their lives is that we tend to worry, you know, about the thing that's happening the next day or next week or whatever else. And you're not present. Um, and so I, I really, I'm very intentional about trying to remain in the moment. Um, and I do answer most of the things that need to be accomplished that day, that day. One of your productivity tips is to answer it right away because yeah, Right away. You know, I, and I want to know if you have any other kind of great pro- productivity tips because, you know, some people say, Barbara Corcoran says she writes down, whether it's a daily ritual or an annual ritual, she writes down all the things she hates and all the things she loves. She makes sure she, you mm. know, gets rid of the things she hates, whether it's a person around her creating the hate and or outsource it oh, because wow. it's not for her and she works towards things she loves. Some other people have said... That's amazing. Yeah, I think even Barbara said this other one. Barbara's actually smarter than I thought, you know. Um... <laughs> Barbara, Barbara says she writes down all her Shade. goals, A's and B's. She said because it, be, it can become too overwhelming if you plump them all together. So she'll make sure that she tries to keep knocking down the A's. And if she gets to the B's, it's okay, but the A's are more valuable. Are there any wow. productivity tips that you may have to get yourself, you know, through the day or, you know, or, or anything that you can share that just helps you and gives you a little bit more edge? Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is that... um because I am I am obsessively present in the moment, I really don't like to leave things for later. You know, it doesn't mean that I have a zero inbox. I, I think the people who do, I'm extraordinarily impressed by them. I don't know how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also forgive myself for not getting to certain things. You know, so yes, of course, we all have a whole host of things that we want to do every day. You know, aside from the calendar or things that are planned, you know, some you know, like the to-do list and things like that. I rarely keep them because, again, I just, I feel like I, I can't get to everything and the list just keeps growing. You rarely, like, cross things off. They just keep being added. Um, and so I do forgive myself for not getting to every single thing or every single email, by the way. So that's what I mean. It's like when I'm when I'm looking at my email, I'm answering what I see, you know? And if I didn't get to it, my philosophy, which maybe is a bad philosophy, I'm not sure, <laughs> is that if it's important enough, 
they'll write again. You know what I mean? Like if, if, it, if it's something that critical, it will come back. Um, and hopefully I'll get to it. Can you remember anything that you used to do that you later on, you know, when you were 19 or 21 or just coming up that you found just was not productive and you don't do it anymore? You thought it was productive then, but it's no longer productive and, you, and you've altered how you how you address it. Oh, man. I mean, maybe it's a it's a more philosophical thing than a practical like everyday thing. But what you know, it's it's about pleasing people. You know, it's about like, you know, again, I feel like people are always that's why I went back to the email, the text message I don't look at in the morning first, you know, because rarely are people putting things in front of you that are, you know, there to help you. You know, it's usually that you have to solve something for somebody else. And so oftentimes um, I have felt or when I was younger, I definitely wanted to solve the issue for everybody. Right. You know, and rarely would do whatever needed to be done for me first. Um, And now call it what you want. Selfish. I don't care what you call it. Uh, I certainly don't call it that. I'm like, listen, I I am proactive about me. (laughs) I'm solving whatever challenge or issue or whatever the thing is that I need to do about me first. You know, it's like that that airplane, you know, rule, right? You put the mask on yourself first before anybody Mm -hmm. else. That's what I'm I'm here to do to make sure that I'm good. And then that way I can help everybody else. And will that does that flow over into work life balance? being with family because you know a lot of times you know people's theory of or when they hear about rise and grind it's you know you know sleep when i'm dead uh you know uh everything's Mm. work 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 and i always tell people that that it's exactly the opposite it's make sure you go and make sure your health is there make sure that you 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 spend time with your family you schedule time with your family just like you're scheduling everything else from plane rides to conference rooms to to restaurants and make sure you schedule time to be by yourself and remember who you are right or go on a vacation oh yes it, it, does that flow over the same way with you saying you you're being selfish to airplane mode i mean is, is do you do that in those elements as well oh absolutely that that cuts across my entire life you know i'm often asked like do you sleep you know when do you rest when self-care you know and i am i'm i'm obsessed with self-care You know, I I don't do well when I don't sleep. And that's, you know, something I know of myself. I mean, I know that there are people who say, okay, they operate well on five hours or four hours or whatever. I can't do that. It's not it's not possible for me. I need seven or eight hours, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and without that, I'm no good. Um, But I'm also able to sleep on planes. I can sleep anywhere. Literally right now, if on this, you know, in this interview, we're like, Bose, let's take a nap real quick. I'd be like, yep, bet. Let's do 10 minutes. We got that in common. You know what I'm saying? I'd be asleep. Listen, I could could take a nap. Anyway, I'm a great napper. (laughs) So, you know, for me, there is that, yes, absolutely selfish, you know, behavior um, or self, you know, uh, self-positive behavior, which indicates that I must take care of me, right? Before, again, I can do it for anybody else. And so even when I'm running around, yes, I absolutely, I schedule, you know, time with my daughter because that inspires me, that makes me feel good, you know, not just because it's in service to her, but it's in service to me too, you know, that I I love being able to connect with her and, and it, it makes me feel better about my day. And so, you know, even now, it's like, you know, folks in my office and those I work with know that, you know, between 7 p.m. and 8.30 when she goes to sleep, that is sacred time for us. You know, so I'm, I'm not to be disturbed at that time. I really don't try to do anything else. Again, I put my phone away so that I'm, uh, you know, looking at her, connecting with her. Um, I use some of that time for, or, or after that time for my mom, because my mom always has something to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> or my girlfriends or whoever. Um, but that means that, you know, because I, I also run, um, you know, with a, a global responsibility that sometimes it will be late, you know, nine, 10 o'clock where I will have to take a phone call or, you know, schedule some responses um, that are necessary, but, you know, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be in bed by 11, you know, there's, there's no way, like I've got, I've got to get the rest. So again, for me, that is a, I've got to make sure that 
that whatever's working for me is working for me. Otherwise, I'm really no good to anybody. In finishing up, I kind of want to just get to one more topic, which is you have a big job. Um, explain to everybody what is the you know chief brand officer of one, the fastest growing company in history of Uber. You know, I look at my job as the chief storyteller. You know, the one who is responsible for telling the story of the product and the people. So what I try to do every day is to understand what's happening from an innovation standpoint, the features of the product, you know, the platform itself, whether that's innovation or it is, you know, something that is sort of hidden within the product that is really cool and interesting. Um, how can how can I help to describe what that thing is or say it colloquially so that we can all get it? Um, but then also telling the story of people. You know, there, there are lots of drivers who have inspiring and interesting and sometimes just funny stories. I want to let the world know about that. Um, and I think it's really important at this time, too, in our sort of political climate, especially in the U.S., that we, you know, create moments where we connect to one, one another. You know, that this idea that we are disparate and that we are only concerned with ourselves and those who agree with us is actually really wrong and damaging. You know, and so in this moment of Uber's history where, you know, you really do have the opportunity to have uh, technology connect people together, what an incredible tool, you know, to be able to describe and, and have people understand the differences in a way that's a safe space. So, you know, every day that's what I'm trying to do, you know, trying to figure out, well, what are the different connections that I can make? How do I showcase the product in a way that's going to be interesting and, and people can understand, you know, how it helps communities and how it helps each other? And then also just inspire, you know, with the story of the people who are behind the wheel. So that's essentially what I do every day. <laughs> you know, I have awesome colleagues who are responsible for the people and culture at Uber and also diversity and inclusion. Um, and it's not my actual job, but I do feel the responsibility of being a good corporate citizen. You know, as you said in the beginning in my intro, you know, there aren't a lot of black women or women of color in executive positions in Silicon Valley, in tech, hell, in corporate America in general. Uh, and so I do feel the responsibility of making sure that we're loud about the need for in inclusion, you know, and the need for diversity, that without me in the seat, who else is going to talk about it? You know, who else is going to make people responsible? Um, I've been very loud about that, that I want us all to be responsible. You know, I want everyone who is in any position, <laughs> whether you are in leadership or not, to be loud about diversity. You know, that that's the only way that we're actually going to make our world better is if we are inclusive of all those who make it up. And it's not really up to just leadership to do that. Certainly, they're responsible for making sure that policies are in place, that you know our work environments are reflecting that, that there's HR responsibilities. But how do we, as corporate citizens, also demand it? You know, if you're in a hiring position, you know, can you then institute for yourself that when you go to make a hire, that it is someone who doesn't look like you? You know, or can you at least review resumes or, or candidates who are different from you? Because what happens is that you're hiring and people often say, oh, well, I felt so much more comfortable with this and that person. You know, if the qualifications are the same, that's often the tiebreaker. Well, that's a tiebreaker because they probably just like you. You know, so can we try to push ourselves further? And if you're not in a hiring position, I want people to then go to their boss and say, you know what? I looked around today and everybody looks the same. You know, how, how are we going to get some p different people here? I feel uncomfortable in this environment, which is so is, is so similar. You know, like, let's do that. Let's get more people to say that. And perhaps we can help inspire some more change. It's just good for us. <laughs> you know, it really is. And what's amazing is that it's not just emotionally saying it's good for us, but we know from lots of business case studies that when you have diverse workforces, you have better business results, you know, because you are connecting to the customer and the consumer at the end of the day, that your internal structure and culture reflects the customers that you're trying to get to. And that's the only way to get great business insights is to have the people you're trying to get inside of the company. That's and you so get it's not just from. about let's do it to feel good. Yeah, it makes sense from a business standpoint. So don't we all want to be more successful in business? We sure do. One of the ways to do that is get more diversity. 
And one of the other ways to do it is for people to follow you and keep listening to you because, uh, you know, I can talk to you for hours, uh, you know, because uh, I'm raised by a single uh, black mama who uh, taught me to be a really responsible person. I'm a new dad again, so you're helping me be a a better father. So, you know, I'm going to respect your time and I really, really appreciate you. I really appreciate this. Rise and grind. I mean, that's the mantra. So I sincerely appreciate you. And everything that you're doing to also pave the way. So thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. All right, it's grow time again, and we're back with Ian Siegel, CEO of Zip Recruiter. So challenges never stop. What is the biggest challenge your business faces today? Well, Zip Recruiter is at an interesting crossroads because fundamentally, what we do is we fill jobs for people. And we get paid on a monthly basis to deliver those candidates to those employers. Our tech is doing things today that literally weren't possible a year ago. We're not just on the cutting edge, we are on the bleeding edge. So what's happening is we're filling jobs faster than we have ever filled them before and possibly faster than jobs have ever been filled before which means that we're actually disrupting ourselves because for 60% of the employers who are using our service, they've only got one job to post. And the faster we fill that job, the less time they need to use our service. So I think as you grow your business, one of my pieces of advice is don't be afraid to disrupt yourself. While this may seem like a negative, I think we can all agree that if we build the best hiring product that's ever existed on the market, we're doing okay. Man, that knowledge I'm going to use for myself. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the compliment. It's great to be here. If you're a growing business, ZipRecruiter can help you hire the right people. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. Once again, try ZipRecruiter for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, there is a whole lot more where that came from. I break things down even further in my new book and audiobook, Rise and Grind. I also share how I've incorporated some of these principles into my own life and use them to stay motivated and focused. Check out Rise and Grind wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And if you want more info on what I'm up to, check out DamonJohn.com and follow me on social media at TheSharkDamon.